You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. My wife and I are having a, a, our first child, Woo-hoo. so it's very exciting, right? It is exciting. Uh, oh, I can't wait. We're getting the nursery together, and one of the things we're also doing is like creating our library of books, right? Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a girl. No, I mean my child is going to be a, like a, a, a girl, right? <laughs> yes. One of the things I'm trying to be cognizant about, I want her to feel like she can do whatever she wants. I want her to be like a kick-ass kid. Like I want her to be empowered, but I also want to make sure that the books that we're picking aren't just like, you know, very Anglo or very, very white. I want to make sure that there's a diversity in, in the reading. So this way that she can see other people, not just my wife and I, you know, because I imagine for the first quite a while, it's just going to be the three of us hanging out with our dog, right? Yeah. And she'll get the impression that everyone's just a, you know, curly haired podcaster, right? (laughs) That's yeah, that's exactly it. But yeah, so I spent a lot of time just looking at baby literature, you know, like my baby's first book and whatnot. Yeah, I just want to give her that experience that life is more diverse than just our little family. Yeah, don't forget to feed your child also, as you're choosing all these books. <laughs> Not just the diet of, of, of multicultural literature. Storybooks are uh, kind of a window into lots of different experiences and, and lives and ways of thinking. And so I think there's probably lots of possibilities there. But do, do you ever use children's literature in your classes? I do. I use some. The Three Little Wolves from the, yeah. the wolf's perspective. I mm-hmm. like that because we're talking about like you know perspectives and making sure you're you're getting like, you know, different lenses into the story. Uh, and so that's really been really great. And then I use a couple other, I really like Dr. Seuss. Yeah. Uh, and so there's like the, a couple that I, I use. Oh, the, the butter, better butter battle book, mm-hmm. which is about the cold war. Uh, yeah. We have a good time with that. Yeah, those are great. Um, and I think there's a feminist version of the, the wolf's book too. So it's kind of cool to, to pose like the, the original three pigs book. There's the, than the one from the wolf's perspective. And there's even like a feminist version of that too. Yeah, it's, I, I used to use Dr. Seuss too in my class. I used the, the Lorax as a way to talk about the burgeoning quote-unquote environmental movement around the 18-1900s. There's lots of connections to uh, yeah, yeah. Gifford, Pinchot, and like all the other people around that. So my students would make connections. But there were several that I used. I also like to use Seven Blind Mice to start my school year as a way to talk about perspectives. And You've talked about this they all see the object from different perspectives. And so it kind of allows us to think about how we all bring our experiences and perspectives into the class, which is part of, to me, building a classroom community where we, re- yeah. we respect each other and see each other as fellow learners. But I remember one area where I used a, a children's book in particular to try to help students see a different perspective was around the Columbus narratives. You know, I'm Columbus, oftentimes, the way he's written about in textbooks is a very Eurocentric, you know, Christopher Columbus, not the director. The Correct. Christopher Columbus, the quote-unquote explorer. Um, and so, you know, the ways that it's always talked about are problematic. He discovered America, a place where people lived, all these kinds of things. And so one of the resources I used among several was this book called Encounter by Jane Yolen. And, you know, I thought that it was a pretty good book to kind of pair and, and, and use as a 
counter to some of the narratives in our textbooks and compare like how yeah. those perspectives were different. But I always assumed that it was a good book. And I remember we were in a Twitter chat on teaching indigenous histories. And by the way, it was an SS chat. And I think it was the, one of the slowest chats we've ever had. Because I think when we ask questions about how to teach indigenous histories in, in our classes, I think a lot of teachers didn't know what to do. Yeah. Oh, they wouldn't know what to say. Yeah. When people ask questions, yeah, I think people didn't know. And I remember suggesting Encounter. And there was, fortunately, there was a very wise tweeter there that pointed out to me some of the problems with Encounter. And I had never thought about him. And I think that's why it's important to reach out to people who are really knowledgeable about, you know, indigenous cultures, if that's what you're talking about, to make sure that the book is a good one that works. What were some of the issues with Encounter? Okay, so one of the big things from Encounter that I, the critiques that I took away, is that the book kind of ends with um, a grandson and a grandfather sitting like kind of by the ocean talking about how their voices were lost, and almost like their history was gone. So it was kind of this narrative that indigenous peoples were defeated and are defeated and do not have a present history. Um, and I think you see that replicated in textbooks. Oftentimes you see a lot of times indigenous histories kind of seem to stop uh, at the, in the late 1800s. And so to me, that's, it kind of conveyed some of those problems. That's like one of the, the issues, I think, with the book. But there's probably some others. And I think one of the things for me I've learned is to be aware of what you don't know. Maybe I should seek out, you know, experts, people who are really knowledgeable in indigenous cultures and histories and ask them, is this a good book? And if I'd done that, I might have seen some of those issues earlier and I had not used it in my class. Do you think that there might be uh, someone who we could talk to about this issue? You know what, Michael? What? what? We we have someone here with us today. Oh, every time you get me. Every (laughs) time. (laughs) And so today we're going to discuss American Indians and children's literature, and we have a fantastic guest, and she was one of the ones who helped me to start to learn about some of the things that I don't know, and so we would like to welcome into the podcast, Debbie Reese. Hello, you two are terrific. I'm enjoying (laughs) listening to you. Also for pointing out that we're terrific. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in education? Yeah, I'm glad to hear that you two are both teachers, former teachers. Uh, I am a former school teacher. I loved school. I'm, I'm one of those teachers that liked school so much that I made my younger siblings be my students. And we played teacher in the backyard at our house on the reservation. That's what makes me different is I didn't grow up in where the place where you guys did. I grew up on a reservation in northern New Mexico. And a key difference about that, too, is that I went to a school that was established by the federal government where the motto was kill the Indian and save the man. (laughs) Yeah, so I grew up on a reservation and part of what happened historically was that uh, the government wanted to stop us from being Indians. So they had these government schools that were designed to do exactly that. It didn't work, obviously, because we're all still very much here. Native nations, Native people are still very much a part of the United States. So most yeah. people don't know that. They don't know about reservations. They don't know that if, if you guys came to visit me for a ceremony that I could invite you to because you can't come to everything, but 
because some things are close to the public. But um, if I invited you up there, you know, you come diving out of Santa Fe and um, head off to our reservation. And if you're going 40 miles an hour when you cross that boundary sign that says you're entering our reservation, you're going to get pulled over by the tribal police. And, and that's a key piece that so many people don't know, that we are sovereign nations. Those of us that have reservations have a police force. We decide how fast people will drive on our reservations. So I guess what I'm getting at is I, that's where I grew up. These are the things that I know because I grew up there. Um, and stepping outside of our reservation and going to high school and then to college, especially, and then to even more especially to graduate school, it was astonishing to me how much people did not know. And they really liked us, though. Gotta say, man, Americans really love Indians. But not the ones that say, hey, that's messed up. They like the ones in the myths and legends, the ones that they dressed up like when they were little kids. So lots of problems that I encountered once I stepped outside of that very safe space that I grew up in. I have a question about the, the reservation. So you said that there's tribal police, but there's a federal school system? Yeah, the federal government in 1880s established Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, with the express intent of that motto, kill the Indian and save the man. They're in the news in the last couple of days because children died at those schools. They were taken to those schools and they'd get sick. I'm talking about little kids, you know, five, six years old uh, on up to um their teens, they would die there and their parents wouldn't know they died because we're talking about the 1800s and the male being what it was. Um, so there's cemeteries at these schools, oh, not wow. at mine. Mine is on the, mine is right there, you know, by the village. So where, where I went didn't have this particular thing. But anyway, there's a cemetery in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where native children are buried and tribes are trying to get those children home, the remains of those children home. So if you look that up in the news, you'll find that I think it's a Cheyenne nation is having three of their children's bodies exhumed and returned home. So there's a lot of dark history in the United States that isn't known. And that's one huge piece that's not known. When you say uh, kill the Indian, um, you're talking about like stomping out the, their, the, the culture. culture. Yeah. Right. Okay. So it's yeah. like an assimilation. Exactly. Gotcha. Um, with a really ugly intent. The, the intent was if we would stop being Indians, then they would not have to continue to honor the treaties that they made with us going back to the 1600s. If they could get out of the treaties, the federal government could get out of the treaties, they could have all the land. If we stopped being who we are as nations of people, the treaties could be voided and they could have the land. That's still going on. People are still trying to do that. It's interesting to think about like the purposes of education because I mean uh, people I think we sometimes talk about education in these kind of general ways like it's always good. The assimilationist Indian boarding schools points out how education can be very problematic, very destructive, and you could even say genocidal in the sense that if it's trying to erase people's identities and to make them someone else and, and ensure they don't exist. And, and so it's so important to think about if we are going to talk about histories and cultures and things like that in our schools, like those have a lot of meaning. And if, we, if we're not doing it right, it can be kind of, it can be destructive. Yeah, and you know, actually, the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples has pieces in it about the destruction of culture as being a form of genocide. So you guys could look that up. That's a really important document that the U.S. was one of the last nations to sign. No surprise. But yeah, these are important things to know. What I get with all the time when I talk with teachers, 
is that, oh, we can't tell kids about that. That's like too hard for them. I'm like, but my kids, we grow up with that. The idea of protecting kids from harsh history, which kids are we protecting? Um, who are we giving a buffer to from knowing history? Because for Native and Black and Latino children, that's our daily. That stuff's our daily. So the, the idea of education, avoiding some topics in history is mostly like, we're not really going to talk about you because our kids matter more than your kids do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just wrong. Can you tell us a little bit more about your experiences as a student going to schools on the reservation? How did that inform your own teaching practices? I went to the government school when I was in first grade. My parents went to a boarding school when they were children, and my grandparents went to the same school in Santa Fe. So that was the Santa Fe Indian School. I went to the day school, which was a theater for that school. But when we were growing up, my parents said, well, you're just going to go to public school after the day school. So I went to the public school from second through high school. So in terms of what did I receive educationally in school, it was the same curriculum that anybody gets. And of course, the biases were all there. There was the celebrations of the explorers, not just Columbus, but the ones that were in New Mexico. So Oñate, he's one of the people that explored New Mexico. But really, you know, we should start saying he invaded because we are talking about nations whose lands were invaded by Europeans. It's very, I think, convenient and to use words like colonize and colonization because they kind of like fudge what was really going on. And I know that's hard. I know teachers think, well, what, is, what am I going to do with that? What are any of us going to do about that? Thinking about invasion as what happened rather than occupation or exploration or colonization. It's a very different way of looking at this country's history. I think part of what an honest history would let us do is stop us from being who we are and what we do as a nation globally in terms of invading and thinking we know best and trying to control the world. I think that we really can't. We shouldn't. The country feels like it should do that, but I think I think we are taught to think that way, that we are better, we are good, and that we can make change in the world. But I don't know about that, because this country was brutal to Native people, and so this country thinking it was a good force in the world is not my experience. And that's that paradoxical or hypocritical nature, right, of the... Um, democracy being inherent to the American experience, but then the way that American global power is wielded and the way that, you know, we ignore parts of our history and and then who's included and whose stories are told and who has a voice and who doesn't. I think talking about history, honestly, is the only way we can grow. And a lot of people seem unwilling to do that. They do. It's so much easier because it brings up so much, like, what am I going to do with that? So what you see a lot in children's books is you have primitive, half-naked, barbarian savages running around attacking those brave and courageous, courageous pioneers. But the fact is, those were men who were protecting their own families, who were protecting their own homelands from people who wanted their resources, for whom we were in the way. So then you have these wars and the way that you justify that and what happened was to make the Indians the bad guys and the pioneers the courageous, heroic people that settled this country and made it what it is today. I really push hard on that because I think that it has ramifications for us as people of the present day and how we are in the world. I want people to understand that we weren't naked and primitive and savage. 
our leaders entered into diplomatic negotiations with uh, European leaders and American leaders to make these treaties. People can think of NATO and think, right, that's a treaty with other nations. Our treaties are the same thing. The idea that we are depicting us as primitive makes it look like, um, it erases that idea that we might have intellect and sophistication and the ability to be diplomatic and have those conversations that said, okay, we're at this point in our conflict and this is what's going to happen next. Important stuff that I think is not taught and needs to be taught. Debbie, we've already kind of gotten into the topic a bit, but today we're going to talk about your work related to American Indians in children's literature, which we'll get the first pub on this, and of course this will be in the show notes, but that's the, the name of your website, American Indians childrenliterature.blogspot.com. And so we're going to direct people to that as, a, as an awesome resource. Can you tell us what you've been doing around this work? When I was a professor at the University of Illinois, the uh, things that you have to do when you're a professor is write for research journals and write book chapters for books that teachers would use in teacher education programs. But I remember being a teacher and not having the money to buy the memberships in those associations, not having the money to buy the textbooks that or the books that those chapters were written in. Teachers have no money. Teachers have to buy their own school supplies. They have to buy their own books for their library shelves. And so I thought, okay, I got to circumvent that system in some way. So I created that blog in 2006 as a way to say, okay, here's the research that I'm doing, the work that I'm doing, free for teachers and librarians to use. So it was a ver very much a political act to circumvent the system that, that universities are supposed to use. I wanted to get that information out there. So... That's how the, the research. Blog got <laughs> yes, indeed. So that's how the blog got started, and I keep at it there, trying to give that information, and I pump it out as you know as much as I can, doing extensive, very detailed book reviews, so teachers can, because um, teachers don't understand the, the, the what's wrong with the word what's wrong with the word squaw, isn't that what you are? And I literally get that question. You're a squaw. And I'm, no, I'm not. <laughs> I am a woman. And words like that, you, you know, words like squaw, chief, warrior, papoose, they've come into the common language in the U.S. And teachers and librarians and writers, people use them as though those are the right words to use. They function, though, as a way to distance people from my humanity. I am first and foremost a woman. And if you're going to call a Native person whatever they are, in their language, use their language. Don't use someone else's language. So papoose and squaw are words, squaw has lots of problems, but those two words come from Algonquin languages. Uh, my language is different. I would use different words. I'm not gonna tell you what they are um, because so many writers just, writers think that they can like, they pluck it and they drop it into their books and call it diverse. It's not, because you can't change a word out and make it all better. You largely review children's literature. And so what has been your method for finding books? Are those just all individual blog posts on your site? Yeah, they're individual blog posts. Some are like some are like quick and easy to do, and some some I take a lot longer to go through um, in terms of reviewing a book. So there are book reviews on my site, but there's also more dear teachers, don't do this kinds of things, trying to reach out to teachers and help them to do better in what they're presenting. So like Things like where I say, okay, school is starting. Um, don't wait to teach about us until Columbus Day or Thanksgiving. Bring us in as a part of the present day because we are a part of the present day. What have you found? What are some of the most common 
mistakes or problems you see in books that address indigenous cultures and histories? And what are the ones that are getting it right? The common problems are not identifying a specific nation. They will just be Native American or American Indian, and the characters will be that, but that there is no such thing as a Native American. That's a broad term that refers to the over 500 federally recognized nations in the country. So that's the first thing is when I'm looking at books, I look for the specificity that a, a writer is bringing to the book. And then that has to be right too. You know, you can't use the language from one nation or the words of one nation for a book of another nation. One of the particular things that's offensive to me is that there is a sense that, okay, all of those tribes on the Northwest coast are similar. And so I, writers will make a story based on the tribes of the Northwest coast. And I'm like, no, they are not the same. There's 19 pueblos in New Mexico. I'm from one of them. They're all different. There's four different languages amongst those 19. We have different size and style of our ceremonial spaces. So you can't write a Pueblo story because, again, there's no such thing as a Pueblo story. So the, so the importance of getting the, the tribal nation specific and the information about that nation's right is crucial. So that's the first thing I look for is has the author done some research and do they know what they're talking about? So there's more, way more wrong than there is right. People feel like, oh, she's so nitpicky. She can't find anything right. And I, actually, I can. <laughs> and I do. And a lot of that has tended to be books by Native writers who grow up with their nations, who grow up knowing something about who they are, and who are careful in what they will share. There are things that we don't share because historically, the um, federal government would send people out to our spaces and and observe what we were doing in ceremony and not understand what we were doing and call it and characterize it in ways that ended up with us being punished for having our spiritual ways of practice. So there were, were laws that would punish Native people for having ceremony. That's just wrong. So we're very careful. Tribes are very careful about what we share. We don't let people take pictures when they're visiting us. When you're at a reservation, you'll probably find signs that say no pictures of this allowed, even structures. We're just very careful because there's been so much abuse. So anyway, there are good books. And for you, who's got a baby um, that you're looking for a book for, I would say <laughs> get Cynthia Lytic Smith's Jingle Dancer. That's a terrific book. And, and I wish that I had that book when my daughter was three years old, four years old, because my daughter was dancing for the first time in a religious ceremony that we were doing. And to get ready for that, you visit members of your family. They help you with your regalia, never a costume. They help you learn the dance and learn the songs and the steps, all of that. You know, it's a religious ceremony. We all, you know, whatever religion we are part of, and I mean that broadly in America, there are things that we learn that are important. They're sacred. They're important to us. They have meaning. And so Jingle Dancer captures that significance with the little girl going to visit her family members. There's a part where she's feeling a little bit overwhelmed. And so her cousin, who's an adult, tells her a traditional story about uh, how you persevere when things are tough. So it's not like entertainment either, because so many traditional stories are treated like Little Red Riding Hood or The Three Little Pigs. And they're not. They're not folktales. They are sacred stories that help us make our way through the world. So anyway, Jingle Dancer has the little girl 
taking part in a ceremony for the first time, her family and community helping her get ready. It's got a traditional story naturally built in there, and the whole story is not in there, just pieces of it are in there, because again, it's the things that we do and do not share. And she knows what that is. So the back page of that, she says that there's an author's note that talks about nation, and that the little girl is part of the Muscogee Creek Nation, Cynthia Lightick-Smith, the author, is also part of the Muscogee Creek Nation. And so there's an author's note there that teachers can gain a lot from by studying that and using that book with kids. That's awesome. Uh, thank you so much. I'm definitely going to put that on the list now. That'll be on the bookshelf very soon. I got what? lots more. I got lots of recommendations. That let's we can- do it. What are So let's say I'm a second grade teacher and I want a good book that would honor uh, indigenous cultures. What are some, just, I don't want you to give away the store, but what are some other ones that you might use and how might you use them? Well, I would use them as part of the regular story time in the classroom, okay? So I wouldn't like wait till Thanksgiving to use a story about Native people. It's got to right. be just part of the part of the everyday. So, so there's that. But then when I'm thinking about children who are a little bit older, I might use another book by Cynthia Lytik-Smith, actually. It's called Indian Shoes, and it's about a family growing up in Chicago, a little boy and his grandfather living in Chicago. And why are they in Chicago? Because of a government program that sought to move people off the reservations into urban areas in the 1950s so they could undermine the nations. They, they didn't say that. You know, they're trying to like help us have a good livelihood um, by moving us to cities and uh, giving us job training. Anyway, so that's why that family's in Chicago. And so there's like six different stories in there, short stories, and uh, about the little boy and his grandfather. And there's one that's been made into reader's theater that you can pull off of the web and kids can do that in the classroom. So I especially like that book too. That's like a, a chapter, early chapter reading book. And for a little bit older, moving on up, you know, to like fourth or fifth grade is Joseph Marshall's In the Footsteps of Crazy Horse. He's Lakota, and his story is about a grandfather and grandson. And the grandson, his daddy is not native. So he's got his, he takes after his daddy in appearance. So he looks, I think he's got blue eyes and light brown hair. And some of the kids on the reservation tease him about that. So the grandpa says, it's not what you look like because it's not. Citizenship in a nation has nothing to do with what you look like. It's just the fact of your lineage. Um, It varies by nation, but anyway, it's not high cheekbones and dark skin and black hair. That has nothing to do with it. So this grandpa, whose grandson is getting bullied by some of the kids in school, takes his son on a road trip. So it's a perfect summer road trip book as well. And they go visiting some of the sites there that are significant to their nation and to Crazy Horse. And as they're doing that, he's saying, this is what they call it. This is what we call it. So in terms of that perspective that you were talking about when you opened the show, you get a lot of that in there. And it's really, really good. There's, there's a piece in there about war and what war does. And it doesn't matter if you think you're right. War hurts people. And he talks about that in that book as well. So get a copy of that. That is really good. I love how excited you are when you talk about the books because <laughs> I, I just feel like you're reliving them as you're talking about them. And <laughs> I can give you another one. This one is by Eric Gansworth. And it's called If I Ever Get Out of Here. And the kid is middle school, seventh grade, native kid. And he loves 
music. So the cover of the book has those giant headphones on. It's set like in the 70s, I think. And he opens with, oh, yeah, they're going to have that bicentennial, you know, the American bicentennial. But we were here a long time before that. And see, that's the natural order of life when you're a native kid. You know, we were here long before the U.S. was. So he looks at the bicentennial celebrations that are being planned in school and knows that that's not about him. He goes to the public school and he meets a white kid and they become friends. And he's becoming very good friends with that family. And, that, and they realize that he's a fan of music so they plan to go see a Paul McCartney concert in Toronto I think it is and so they're going to have to cross wow. the border from the US into Canada and as they're approaching the border the white child's father says where's your passport oh no and he says I don't need a passport I have this and he's got his tribal ID and because of the J treaty between US Canada and his nation you have a different way of crossing the border he has this tribal ID. The border guards know all about that. So it's like these little gems dropped in. These That's books. fascinating. The John, written by John Jay. Right? Yes. 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 Yeah. I'm excited. The there Jay Treaty. Yeah. So anyway, yes, I, I do. I can hear my, my voice much more excited <laughs> talking <laughs> about these great books than some of the dark history and what teachers end up teaching and all. So, yeah, books can help us move past all of that. It seems like in addition to social studies classes, these could also be taught in an English classroom because it just seems like good literature. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So much better to teach some of these books than some of the things that get taught. Uh, my daughter, some of these stories are tough. You know, having being a native parent, raising a native child in a society that doesn't see us for who we are. When she was in third grade, the school teacher was having them read Caddy Woodlawn. And my, my daughter's brilliant, I will say that. She went to Yale when she was 16. Oh my. She got a master's at Cambridge University after Yale. Then she went to law school at Harvard. So all of this before she's like 25, you know. So she's brilliant. Everyone says their kids are brilliant, but uh, you're not joking around. <laughs> well, you know, these are measures that, that we can we should talk about right. critically as well. Of but course, anyway. of course, yes. Yeah. But, but definitely she has a lot of game. <laughs> and uh, so she was reading Caddy Woodlawn when she was in the third grade, and I'm, I was in grad school. And she said, um, I don't get it, Mama. And I looked over and I thought, what, what does she not get? You know, what does she not get? And I looked and she had Caddy Woodlawn in her hands. And my heart just sank because I knew exactly what she didn't get. She, she said, it's this part right here. And she said, she, was show, she showed me the page where there was like, Caddy, Caddy Woodlawn is saying, you can't trust those Indians. You never know when there's going to be a massacre. Now, see, that fucking sucks yeah. that any child has to deal yeah. with something like that in school. That came to a good resolution when I started to talk with the teacher about it. And, they, and I bought 12 copies of Birch Park House for them to read instead of Caddy Woodlawn. Because again, this is a school where teachers don't have any money and they're using the resources they have on the shelves. That means yeah. using Caddy Woodlawn because in the 70s, there was lots of money for schools. And so schools got multiple copies of novels like that one. And they use them today, not realizing, well, you know, there's a lot of problematic content in there. In there. So it's a long story. That was, the, that was in a nutshell. Um, so Birch Bark House by Louise Erdrich is a far better story than Little House on the Prairie or Caddy Woodlawn, those historical fiction books that often get taught in third and fourth grade to kids in the country. I know that not waiting until Columbus Day or Thanksgiving to talk about uh, Indigenous folk, what other advice would you give to, to classroom teachers in incorporating more uh, Native American literature. 
Or just being better teachers in general. I would like teachers to take every book they have on the shelf that has native content, even if it's one line, off the shelf. I think this is not a censorship issue. We are teachers who are charged with educating kids. I think that most teachers, well, I know teachers care. That's what they chose as their profession. They want to do well by all the children in their classroom. But they grew up in the same society that the three of us did, socialized and educated to think about Native people in a certain way that's actually harmful to Native people because it's harmful to our children and their self-esteem. It's flat out harmful. So I want them to take that away. I don't want them to justify using it saying, well, that's what they thought back then because people still think that. This is not an idea from a long time ago. People still think that we were primitive barbarian savages. That's not an idea that anybody ever gave up. It's still present and it's wrong. It's false idea. It's, it's, not, it's not accurate. So get rid of it all because you're not only harming Native children, you are harming non-Native children too because you're passing along stuff that's just not right. You're contributing to their misinformation about this country and all of the people in it. So my tip is get rid of it all <laughs> and don't assume that there's parts in there that are going to be okay because I think the cumulative damage that happens is significant when we're thinking about what people grow up thinking they know about Native people, and they got that from school. Since I've recently been digging more into Indigenous issues, I think the biggest thing I realized is just how much I don't know. And it's been humbling because I have a social studies background. You know, I got a degrees in social studies. I spent 12 years in school myself, and I just realized how much misinformation, misunderstanding, and just voids in my knowledge there are. And so I think one thing I've really... Um, tried to do is look to people like Debbie who do know and go to her website. So that's one of the f big tips I know I can give. Go to her website and use the resources she's accumulated because she does a great job of reviewing books and being very specific about problems or issues or why a book is really good. What's that website again? The website is American Indians in Children's Literature.blogspot.com. It's tremendous and we'll have it on the show notes. And I will give you guys some resources, too, that you can add to the show notes. Excellent. Yeah, we'd love a list. Oh, yeah, that one I wrote about we are not people of color is especially good because in education, you know, I went through, I got a teacher education degree, too. We're in that multicultural framework. There's no space for sovereignty. There's no space for nationhood mm -hmm. in that. So we immediately, that most important piece of who we are, there's no space for it in that framework. So that people of color page on my website, it's really good to help with that. Fantastic. We'll definitely link to that. Debbie Reese, thank you so much for joining us today. So Debbie, where can our listeners find you? And we've already talked about your website, but where else can they find you online? These are things that I don't hold in my head. I think my Twitter <laughs> account is Deb Reese, D-E-B-R-E-E-S-E. -E -E. So I'm, I'm on Twitter and, and my website primarily. And I've been publishing American Indians in children's literature for 10 years, 11 years now. And so come there. Also, I do respond to teachers especially. So if, so if any teachers have a question about a book they've got on their shelf, they can write to me. And if I don't have access to the book, they can do some photographs of the pages and send them to me and I will help walk them through that. So I definitely try to work with teachers a lot. And I don't condemn them either because uh, <laughs> it's not their fault. It, it, being ignorant is, is a fault. Um, if you don't try to become unignorant. Right. And so I want to help with that. Absolutely. Right. Thank you. And you've, I know you've already helped me and just thank you so much for joining us today. We certainly hope to continue this 
discussion online and in other spaces. Alrighty. Thank you for having me. <laughs> At the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something creative, fun in education, or you just want to chat, tweet us at Visions of Ed. And of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you want us to be. If you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air, and it helps people find this podcast. So thank you so much for those people that have written five-star reviews. And I cut them out, and I put them on my refrigerator. Eventually, if we get enough of them, you can make like a quilted blanket out of all the five-star reviews. That would be the warmest blanket ever. (laughs) You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast signing off.